Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 102 of Weekly Weights. My name's Alex Hayes. Joining me on Zoom is Will and joining us today is Kyle Dobbs. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. So for the listeners who aren't aware of who you are, would you want to give a quick rundown, quick intro? Yeah. So I've been in various parts of the fitness industry for almost 15 years uh, at this point. Um, I was a trainer at the beginning of my career. I've logged over 20,000 sessions. Um, Ended up going into management and development, being an education director for a company nationwide, overseeing multiple markets in the US and about 2,000 trainers under under my watch as well. So I've also been in high level management. Um, and most recently over the last two and a half years or so, I kind of branched into entrepreneurship and started my own business where we handle everything from remote coaching to trainer development to consulting with facilities. So I just want to pick up on one important thing you said there, which is that you'd logged 20,000 hours of personal training. As everybody yes. knows, the trope is it's 10,000 hours to master a task. So the quality of guests we're bringing you guys are literally double masters. You're essentially a Yoda of personal training. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Probably not. I, I can't guarantee that all 20,000 hours of, uh, of that one I would, I would classify as mastery. But, but I've definitely um, been in the trenches you know, for a long period of time. I, my entire training career was in New York uh, City. So I was essentially working seven days a week for almost eight years um, and averaging anywhere between 200 and 225, 250 sessions uh, a month. Yeah, I guess like it is important to delineate between what is like deliberate practice and trying to learn and just passing the time. Like Alex, for instance, in a one hour personal training session might spend 45 minutes sitting in a chair eating spaghetti, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so need 40,000 hours before he's gotten anywhere productive. But yeah. you certainly do sound like a hard worker. And extending on the yoga theme, um, or Yoda, I should say, theme. Okay. Not, not good on yoga. No, it's not my strong point either. You are talking to two of the most sagittal plane only people in the world, so it's fine. None of us are yogis here. Alex can't breathe at all, let alone do, do vinyasa. But, um, but speaking of Yoda, if, people, if you follow Kyle on Instagram, his compound performance, I think there's an underscore after. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and he does, he does write some, some very interesting thought provoking captions. Um, and I really enjoy reading them and he puts out some really, really good content. And a lot of it centers around centers around sort of manipulating how we move in our postures in order to get the best performance that we can out. And he talks about all the things he does in a task dependent manner. And this has been a, this has been a topic that we've sort of come back to a few times now in the show, um, particularly in our episodes previously with Jamie Smith. So what we wanted to get Kyle on specifically to talk about was this idea of, and I'm saying this with inverted commas, movement quality and how it pertains to powerlifting and how we can sort of manipulate ourselves um, as athletes and as movers to be more efficient at that task. So really excited to dive into this with you, man. Um, I guess our first, our first job is just to give some type of an operational definition for movement quality. So, so how would you define it? So, from an operational standpoint, you know, I don't think we can talk movement quality without talking about the 
the task itself first, right? You know, any, any kind of movement is going to be dependent on what's required for whatever task that we're trying to accomplish. So movement quality for walking and breathing might be completely different than from repping a, you know, a one RM on a deadlift, you know, and I think that's the, the most important thing to kind of begin understanding uh, about just the dynamics behind this is there is no one set posture that's probably going to be beneficial all the time and that's okay. Right. And I think we get really binary in thinking, especially on the internet, the land of no context uh, and thinking that, you know, just because something's posted is the way that something should be happening all the time. So I, I appreciate you guys asking that question. Um, an operational definition is probably going to have to do less with specific biomechanics as much as it's going to have to do with understanding what the task requires and being able to accomplish those things with efficiently and effectively within a given amount of time. Okay. And if we, let's just envisage most things we talk about in a powerlifting context, because mm -hmm. from what I've gathered, most people who are listening to us are powerlifters. Um, if you were, if you were just about anything else, I'd disregard it. Everything we've ever said. Um, but, but let's, let's just think in terms of powerlifting or in any athletic endeavor, then what's our purpose in trying to improve movement quality? What does it actually give us? So I think we have to, again, if we're looking at movement quality as pertained to the big three, right, it's literally maximizing our ability to leverage load, right? So we're looking at maximizing muscular integration for short durations of time, primarily anaerobic based movements. So for, for powerlifters, like respiration during the sport, isn't something that I worry that much about because we're most likely doing some kind of Valsalva or breath hold or bracing anyway. Probably don't want to be worried that much about inhalations and exhalations with, you know, 80% 1RM on your back or trying to pull it off the floor, right? Like I don't want rib cage mobility or excessive mobility, excessive ranges of motion displayed when I'm trying to lift maximal load. I want to be in a very constrained environment where instability doesn't actually come into the play at all, right? Like I want to limit that as much as possible. And I want to be, as you put it earlier, a sagittal monster, right? Like I don't need frontal plane as much uh, when I'm just lifting weights vertically in space from that standpoint. So I want to unpack a few things you said because already our horizons have expanded enormously um, in like the last three or four sentences. I think a lot of lifters would be, would be surprised to hear that, that respiration and respiration mechanics might influence how we move and particularly that those changes might also be like sort of plane dependent or they might they might change how we move in certain movement patterns more than others so could you give us the give us the idiot's overview of how of how breathing might influence um things like stiffness and mobility and how it might influence our access to certain ranges of motion yeah. So, I mean, I think we have to go kind of all the way down to the autonomic nervous system to kind of fully grasp what's going on here. You know, your body is going to prioritize the ability to breathe over all other functions, right? So as soon as you get to a point where you're depleted of oxygen or you cannot get oxygen inefficiently, you become hypersympathetic immediately, right? So that, that, that gets doesn't in your mean fight or fight. Like we care about other people's emotions. That means, no, <laughs> yeah, that means you're jumping into the fight or flight, you know, system of the autonomic branch, right? So you get hyper vigilant. Um, this is great for increasing tonicity and, and improving performance, 
but you start dropping off other qualities like immune, immune function, libido, your, your, um, your heart rate and uh, blood pressure both increase quite significantly. Your core body temperature increases. You lose prefrontal cortex function and start becoming very amygdala driven as well from that perspective. So it's literally just kind of compromising all functions of, uh, of your physiology that don't matter in the, in the set time to get, you know, either to accomplish a task directly or get away from something. Right. And that's where the fight or flight comes in. So when we start talking about the ability to breathe, we start talking about everything and respiration mechanics obviously starts at the lungs, right? And the lungs are surrounded by the rib cage. The rib cage contracts and expands as we inhale and exhale. And when we're in a position where we're not stacked rib cage over pelvis, we end up comprising our diaphragm and locking down our rib cage into a more constricted uh, structure where it can't expand fully to take full inhalations, right? Our diaphragm can't fully descend. We can't create intra-abdominal pressure at that point without bracing ourselves cognitively rather than uh, subconsciously. So as we're going into those you know, daily movements and daily postures, the ability of us uh, to the ability for people to maintain an, an axial uh, or axial skeleton or the the spine, the ribcage, and the pelvis uh, structure in space allows us to move distally more efficiently. So it, everybody, I think, has probably heard in some way, shape, or form, uh, proximal stability leads to distal mobility, right? So your axial skeleton ends up being the anchor point for your arms and legs, right? So femurs, humerus, scapulas. They don't move efficiently if the rib cage and pelvis aren't in a set point position. We end up skewing link tension ratios of the muscles that are attached to both of those structures by compromising the actual proximal insertion points. So if you want to be able to move your humerus and your scapulas, like internal external rotation, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, you need a stable rib cage to move those things on, right? If you want to be able to move your femurs, again, flexion, extension, internal, external rotation, you need a stable pelvis to move those things on. And if you're not in that stacked position, if you're in a you know thoracic extension or lordotic extension, lumbar extension, anterior pelvic tilt, whatever you want to call it, you've compromised your ability to move those distal appendages. So your humerus and your femurs. And your movement efficiency isn't going to be as great from that standpoint. So... Because you were saying that like postures can be task dependent, is there ever then a case for us saying, I want to throw myself into quite a lot of extension and deliberately constrain what happens distally? Like does reducing mobility there ever give us more stability or more ability in like specific tasks? Yeah, that, that's where you get into your, your large sagittal bilateral movements, right? And that's where I think, you know, powerlifting is probably going to be a place where I'm not as concerned about, joint range mobility, as long as I can hit the mobility needed to perform the task, right? Everything about powerlifting and the, and the, the positions and stances that we're taking to in postures to create leverage is about minimizing overall movement, right? We get as wide as we can and we get as arched as we can to minimize the literal distance the weight has to travel typically, right? that also sagittalizes and decreases our, our need to stabilize joint structures because we get an end range extension and external rotation measures. 
right? When you're fully extended and externally rotated, you only have to stabilize one way rather than when you're more of a neutral position, you have to stabilize two ways, right? If you think about that as like a continuum and you've got max extension and max flexion on one side, if you're in the middle, you have to stabilize against both flexion and extension. If you're all the way over an extension, you can use that outer barrier as a constraint within itself where you only have to make sure that you're not overly internally rotating or overly flexing from that standpoint. And so, so for powerlifters, if we're, we've sort of in this last little bit of discussion said that there's, there's certain things that are obviously really important movements for us to get to. So, you know, that end range extension and external rotation that can be useful postures. Is there then even any purpose in us accessing the opposite end of the spectrum or is it pretty much just naff? So I think what we're talking about here is sport versus life, right? So when, when you're on the platform, when you're actually training for those lifts, probably not so much unless you're in pain or you're in a position where you start reaching diminishing returns on your performance, right? And that's where some, some variability might be helpful to reduce those things. Um, what I look at as far as the power lifters that we work with, right, is we don't change anything within their comp lifts unless those things are happening. Otherwise we're just driving strength. What we work on giving them from a variability standpoint has to do more so with the ability to feel better and recover outside of the gym. So we look at improving performance indirectly through better recovery when they're not actually training, right? So if we can get them in a more neutral position, once they leave the gym, they've got better respiratory mechanics, right? We know that breathing leads to recover reoxygenation of tissues. They sleep better, lower HRV, lower autonomic stress. At that point, we can potentially increase recovery, increase training volume and increase training frequency for better results long-term. So I want to, I want to try and synthesize a few of the things you've said so we can progress the discussion a bit. Um, so we've sort of determined that movement quality is task dependent but that there might be certain postures or certain movements that we need more control of. And by modulating our body's positions, we can give ourselves more stability and, and perhaps more efficiency in certain tasks. Um, and that outside of that, we can also then manipulate the postures of our body and the movements that we undergo to perhaps recover a little bit better and become overall more efficient trainees by letting us get through more work without beating ourselves up. Would that be a reasonably fair summary? Yeah. Excellent. So I guess the next question is where in, if we have sort of a hierarchy of importance for training, um, where would this idea of like improving or, or at least being cognizant of movement quality sit, um, within that, like how, how much consideration should we be giving it when we're training athletes? Do you think? I think as needed, right. You know, if we're training strength specific athletes and we know that we're looking at output variables, um, you know, powerlifting is kind of the epitome of a specificity based sport, right? So variability is going to be very low just by nature already, right? Like a powerlifter that's training for overall variability probably isn't doing that well within the actual confines of the sport. They're not, they're not probably re- getting great results. So at this point, we're already talking about variability being at a pretty low, uh, low position on that hierarchy, just based on what the sport is in and of itself, right? Like if I'm training a soccer player or basketball player, 
field sport athlete, whatever, variability is going to be much higher. Absolute strength, much lower, right? We're going to flip that probably. Uh, what I start looking at variability for strength athletes is again, as needed. You know, most of the people we see are either reaching diminishing returns on their lifts and they're looking for that extra one to 2% and freeing up some movement variability might be able to get them there. Uh, or they're coming to us in pain, right? Uh, just because some of the constraints that they've created have come back to haunt them, you know? And again, I'm also based on the people I've talked to and in my experience, not under the impression that most strength sport athletes, uh, consider their sport to be quote unquote safe in any way. Right. I don't think anybody considers it a health-based activity as much as they love the aspect of the performance. They love the competition and they, and they love the, the feeling of being strong. Right. And they're willing to risk a little bit of health to go do that. And that's okay. Right. And we try to make that a, a big consideration with the athletes that we work with and really try not to reinvent the wheel that much, you know? So when we're looking at increasing variability, it's very much built into like the accessory portions of our, of our training, typically in off seasons as well. Not when people are going through full meat prep and then potentially adding a little bit of some positional drills for prep and cool down based on again, what that person's assessment might be looking like. So specific to those things. For sure. So when, again, thinking about this idea of like of improving movement quality or controlling postures and things, are we just talking in a really wanky sense about technique right now? Or, or is this something that you think sits outside of like the basic idea of how we lift a, say, do a squat? I think techniques has more variables included, right? When we start looking at technique, we start looking at a lot of other factors as far as morphology and training history too. Like you'll see people adopt different stances. You'll see people adopt different types. I mean, just look between like conventional and sumo lifters, right? We'll see people do very different stances on a squat ranging from the, the width of their feet to how hingy that squat actually looks in forward translation of the knees. So I think technique is a continuum for me where there's kind of a wide range of accepted postures and movements. And within the sport, there's, you know, the, the sport of powerlifting, there's even constructs as far as what's accepted and what's being judged. So I think we have to go with those measures when we start talking about powerlifting. The rest of it, I think, has a lot to do with that person's personal exercise history and training history, as well as what they're comfortable with. Because you'll see at any, good, at any powerlifting meet a fairly wide variation of any of the three big lifts based on what people are able to accomplish. Um, and again, like I said, a lot of what we're trying to do most of the time is leverage morphology. Uh, you know, it's a squat from someone who's six, five, like myself is going to look very different than a squat from someone who's five, six. Should are you that tall? That's flex, I'm, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely tall. It's, it's not great for squatting. That's so, cool. you know, that's, that's <laughs> what I reckon. I reckon we've got this fella. So, so Kyle's from Missouri. And he's sitting on Zoom with a tropical island background and he's thought, fuck it, I'm going to east out on these guys so hard. <laughs> so tell us he's in the Bahamas and then, then just start lying about his height. Mate, you know how yeah. often on the podcast Alex tries to tries to say that he's five foot ten when he's really about five, seven and a half? Five, eight and three quarters, Will. I, I mean, in college, I was listed at six, seven. You know, if that oh, makes shit, really? There, so. Yeah, they, they up with, everybody's height on that. With shoes? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. So yeah. Were you um, were you playing sport in college? 
Yeah, I was playing basketball. Yeah, right. Well, but I feel like basketball, if you lie about your height, it's really going to come back to bite you. But in like rugby, which was my game, if you look at all the professional rugby players and their, their stats, their height's always inflated by two inches and their weight's always inflated by like 10 to 15 kilos. So there'll be these little backs. I remember shooting, I actually was like an extra in an ad for, it was, a, um, it was like a petrol additive for cars that was meant to make them more efficient. And I shot an ad with this, um, with this wallaby. His name was James O'Connor. And, and he's like a little guy, incredible athlete, like so explosive, really strong, muscle bound. But in his wallaby stats, it was like James O'Connor, like six foot one, hundred kilos. And I was like, oh, it's weird. He doesn't look that big on the field. And I went to shoot with him. And he, like he wasn't, he wasn't a centimeter over five foot nine. And he was probably 85 <laughs> kilos. And I was like, I'm so disappointed <laughs> when I saw him in real life. It was so funny. All I got out of that story is that you're a fitness model. And now I'm just blown away by the whole thing. <laughs> you know, it's way sadder than that because for that specific ad, um, what this was when, um, flash mobs were like really a thing on the internet. You remember that? Like oh, I, people would turn up and dance in like the middle of a city square and it'd go viral. Yep. So what the company was Castrol and what they wanted to do was, um, they wanted to like generate some, some viral buzz around an ad they did without them investing much effort in it. So they went to my rugby club and basically said like, can we get 30 of you who are free on Sunday? And we'll give you free food and free wallabies and all blacks jerseys if you just show up. And so I was like, Oh, okay, whatever. I'll show up. And so like 30 of us show up and we all dressed up as the wallabies and the all blacks. That's the Australia and New Zealand rugby teams. And we got marched down the middle of Wynyard, which is like one of the busiest um, sort of commuting hubs in Sydney to this little grassy patch. And we basically had to pack down a scrum, and James O'Connor was the referee. It didn't make any sense, but this guy's like a wallaby star at the time. And so, so we basically did like a flash mob rugby game for three minutes in the middle of a city. And it was on a weekend, so nobody saw it anyway. And then Castrol just put it on YouTube. And they were basically hoping... And they named it something like flash mob rugby game in Sydney. And they were just hoping it would go off. And it never got shared. I think it's got like 3,000 views total. And most of them are me. It's so funny. <laughs> But I was like, awesome. I was in this very oversized Wallabies jersey playing in the front row. So I was the furthest thing from a fitness model in that at all. Um, you should have you should have just kept it. Should have kept it going. Oh look, I've tried, but my modeling portfolio pretty much ends there. Like, and it doesn't matter how many times I message Gymshark. I'm like, come on, guys. You know, <laughs> like I've worn your shit before. I looked good, and they're like, eh, you know, as compared to like. I don't know, Nick Cheadle um, or like Kai Green. You just don't look that jacked. And I'm like, oh, it's weird. Well, because we spoke <laughs> shit thought? about Stringer singlets last week, Will. Oh, uh, yeah. Alex has like, Alex has very strong opinions on active wear generally. Um, <laughs> and I think to be fair, Alex, the reason you don't like a lot of the things that you don't like are because you're too pale to look good in anything remotely skimpy. It's very fair. I <laughs> that that hit that hits me right in the feels. So I, I hear you right there. I, well, I too am in that boat. We've gotten a little bit off topic. No fault of mine, I must say. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I feel like I feel like in there there were some really good nuggets. Um, so we were talking about how technique is technique is this really broad broad based thing. Movement quality and posture and stuff might be some part of it. I think there's probably an intersection. So you were using the example of 
squats and how some people might move a little bit more hingely or have like mm. less forward translation of the knee and so on. Um, but also that when we're choosing techniques, we want to make sure that we're doing things that are like congruent with the rules and stuff. But as far as the intersection between movement quality and technique goes, I guess, I guess where the real carrot is in this for powerlifters is thinking like, if we can change our postures and change our, and like improve our movement quality, we might be able to get into more efficient or comfortable positions. And so thinking about the squat, especially um, getting people out of a hyperextended position can often like let them access a little bit more hip flexion more comfortably, maybe get them, get them slightly more stacked in the bottom of the squat and slightly more efficient in coming up. Do you see that intersection as well, one being correct and two being important and something that we can leverage? I think for some people, uh, again, you know, I, I don't want to get too much of a quote unquote, like it depends type conversation, but I do think for, for some people you are going to get, um, more movement efficiency with that kind of more dorsiflexed ankle, more forward translation than the more vertically translated pelvis, right? So it's not just going back, but it's going down further and that'll allow the, the actual torso to be a little more upright and a little bit more stacked what that's going to do for that lifter is actually going to help them create more inner abdominal pressure, right? So more IAP, right? Because how we create that is actually aligning our pelvic floors and our diaphragm to create pressure, right? And a lot of power lifters will kind of simulate that in an overly extended posture by pressing as hard as they can against the belt, right? Like that's why we typically use belts, right? Is to kind of create a false IAP by, by putting a constraint around your, uh, around your torso. Uh, or they'll just like flex their abs as hard as they can consciously, right? Which is, which is also a way to go about that. And it works, right? When you're doing a heavy squat or a heavy deadlift, like people will have success with it. The problem is you don't want to walk around all day like that, right? You know, that's where kind of getting off the platform and, and having a posture change might be useful. Um, within the squat itself, again, I, I think when we start talking about movement efficiency, we're also going to still have to talk about the task, right? Because it's when, when you look at a bunch, you know, tens to hundreds of power lifters squatting and a lot of them are adopting this same more extended, more hingier pattern that actually tells me that that's probably the most efficient way to lift as much weight as possible on your back for most people, right? Like people self-organize that way without being coached into it. That's the body just figuring out the most efficient way to lift all that weight. And, and again, what we're looking at there is with that hyperextended pattern, like what are you, what are you actually concentrically orientating all the upper back muscles, right? Like we shorten and contract the lats, huge muscle groups, pretty much as tight as we can, right? both in spinal flexion and through scapular adduction, right? So the rhomboids, the mid traps and the lats are just pretty much on to that whole mo like range of motion, stabilizing the spine, right? Which means you don't necessarily need your abs because you can posteriorly stabilize everything in that, in that posture. Right? So when I start looking at like efficiency for squatting, if I'm just looking at, max weight being the primary target for that squat, that's probably actually the most efficient way to do it, right? There's a reason why nobody's front squatting in powerlifting meets, right? Like there's a reason why pretty much everybody you'll ever talk to has a higher low bar back squat than high bar back squat, right? The only time you see a difference there is when you have somebody with the extremely short torso and short legs. 
And that's because that's simply because from a leverage standpoint, just pure physics, they're not as dependent on a hinge at the hips. Right. So when we start looking at like those schematics and like that actual, the biomechanics of those lifts, I think from an efficiency standpoint, just from an output standpoint, what people are actually doing with that hinge or squat is probably creating efficiency there. They might be losing IAP along the way, but if they're able to brace hard enough, they can still complete that lift. Again, the problems lie is, you know, what do you do when you're off the training floor? Are you just walking around in that posture all day or are you able to transition back into something a little more useful for that? Well, I was going to say, why don't we move the, move the discussion a little bit towards when we're off the platform then. So, so we've got, we've sort of characterized powerlifters as being pretty extendy sagittal plane boys. Um, what are, what are some of the movements that we might lose some access to and postures that we might lose some access to from powerlifting and how are some useful ways we can go about quote unquote fixing it? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the big things we lose are, you know, spinal flexion for one, right. And we look at the spine, we've got lordotic curves at, or, uh, sorry, kyphotic curves at both the sacrum and thoracically, right. And if we're in that fixed extended state, we're flattening out our thoracic spine. And, and again, that's kind of inhibiting our ability to expand and compress the rib cage and breathe efficiently. So we're losing that. The other big thing we're losing is we're typically in a, in a pretty, pretty significant anterior pelvic tilt at that point as well. So we're losing the ability to fully flex and extend our hips, right? Which is obviously going to be important for things like gait mechanics, right? If you can't flex and extend your hips, you also have a hard time at that point reciprocally internally and externally rotating the femurs. So you get a lot of power lifters who kind of waddle, right? You see that super wide stance where everything's kind of turned out and they kind of step sideways like penguins rather than like walking forward. Dude, I've been doing a little bit of running because of quarantine. Like, tell you, and <laughs> like, I just want to say up front, I don't want to misrepresent anything. At my absolute athletic peak, I was slow as a wet week. Like, I'd be <laughs> outrun by a statue, right? It's never a good runner. But I've been going and doing like the odd little bit of sprinting and like shuttle work and stuff at the Oval. And I, I cannot drag my knee forward and up like in a, in a reasonably straight line and like express any internal rotation. My, like I'm literally doing like hurdles side to side yeah. because I have so yeah. little access to and control of hip flexion and internal rotation. It's, it's bizarre and appalling. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what you really lose from a lower body perspective is, you know, when we go into hip flexion, the femur, because of, again, the ball and socket joint is going to internally rotate as well. Like that's, that's the mechanism it's supposed to. So, if you're in an anterior pelvic tilt and everything's turned out and you're trying to flex your hips in that same range of motion, you can't rotate. You're going to have a stoppage in your range of motion. You're not going to be able to access really good hip flexion for things like walking and running. And, and that's where people are typically going to be the most uncomfortable, right? And that's also going to lead to potential sacral issues. There's a lot of things that that can turn into depending on, you know, the intensity and the force that you're trying to, uh, perform those at those tasks within. Um, but it really comes down to, I think, gait and breathing, which is what we do a lot. Obviously we, we breathe all the time, but we also walk and move around a lot of time. So if you can't do those two things comfortably, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of your life outside of training. 
So I've seen on your Instagram a lot of really interesting drills that you'll you'll occasionally do. Drills that are centered on breathing, and you'll do the odd you'll do the odd like you know split stance or lunge type of movement. Sometimes with wall support mm-hmm. and with some thoracic rotation and things happening up top. What's your rationale for including stuff like that? And is there any utility in it for people who are powerlifters? Do you think? Yeah. So, so what we're looking for there again is I'm just trying to neutralize the pelvis and the rib cage a little bit. And the primary things that I'm looking for there, because I'm also extended, like I'm, I'm not a power lifter, but I'm someone who I, I was a sprinter and basketball player. And I, both of those types typically take on extended postures as well. Most people who go to the gym often take on a more extended posture. Um, so what I'm looking for there is, is neutralizing the pelvis and the rib cage. And a lot of that is simply hamstrings and abs, right? So a lot of what I'm trying to do is use proximal hamstrings to help pull the pelvis down posteriorly and use the abs to help pull the, the pelvis up anteriorly and the rib cage down anteriorly and kind of bring it together, right? Um, kind of go from that Pac-Man look to more of uh, two parallel lines, right? If you want to think about a visual there. So, a lot of the drills that I'll do are working on just integrating those muscle groups into the picture. And again, my goals with any of those drills is then to transition that into something with a higher stimulus from a training floor perspective, right? Like I, I think the, the sensory motor stuff, some of those lower level drills are good for just muscular coordination and trying to wake some things up and just kind of, find some ranges of motion that maybe you're not able to express normally. But if you really want to create change there, you're going to have to actually stress those positions in a more stimulus way. Right. So that's where we'll start including things into accessory lifting for people uh, outside of their strength base. Yeah. I think that last point is one that's really important because I think the second, I probably should have said this earlier just in case, but like the second we start talking about movement quality and posture and stuff, people's eyes glaze over because they basically think of, foam rollers and dicking around and not actually doing anything that's exercise. Um, But, but you speak about integrating those postures into, into actual training and stressing them. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking for, say for variability in powerlifters, what might be some accessory movements or accessory movement patterns that would be worth training and stressing? Yeah. So let's, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the squat. So let's, let's kind of keep on that path because there's probably more examples there too, even. So if you're doing a backloaded low bar back squat, right. And you're do, and doing a hingier squat and that's on, you know, that's specific to your task, to your sports purpose for an accessory lift. What we might have you do is something more like a front loaded squat, right. To move the rib cage back in space, to create a more vertical line of squat, so that could be a SSB based squat. That could be a double kettlebell rack squat. That could be a goblet squat. That could be a barbell front squat, right? But all we're doing there is trying to get a more vertical translation of the pelvis. We're trying to get the knees forward in space. We're probably going to do a narrower stance as opposed to your wider stance comp squat. And we're going to try to keep those ribs locked down and those abs tight. I think what and, you just described is something like certainly that my subjective experience has been like, you know, unbelievably so. Like when I do a safety bar squat, I get torched through the abs. My thoracic erectus gets mm-hmm. work, but I get mm-hmm. smoked in the abs. I squat with a slightly narrower stance and I'm forced into a more upright position. So my, like my knees have to stay forward a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So my quads get a little bit more and I do move out of, out of my normal squatting pattern. 
but it also does seem to do a lot to actually sort of keep me feeling healthy and good through the hips to have included some safety bars as like on an alternate day to my normal squat. And I think a lot of listeners might, might have a similar experience, but never have had it sort of like validated in the way that you just did. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just uh, giving people what they don't have access to, right? You know, if we're constantly adopting the same posture and we're loading it heavily, right? We're going to get really strong in that position and specificity always has a cost, right? So if we get really good at one thing, we get elite level at one thing, we're going to drop off a lot of other stuff to get there. So again, like, am I going to take this over and, and drive enough volume that it actually uh, decreases my ability to do like a comp squat? No, right. I'm just going to apply it enough to keep everything kind of greased up to give myself those ranges of motion when I leave the gym. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because everybody kind of thinks about some of those, uh, we will, we'll quote unquote call them correctives as being like that ground based stuff. Right. And I think that's the major, you know, I'm not even going to call it a misconception because that's kind of what the industry promotes it as, but like we've got guys that are doing safety bar squats with, you know, from a kilo perspective, anywhere between, a, you know, 150 to 175 kilos on within their accessory work. Like it's not ground based, low level, low stimulus stuff. Like they're doing anywhere between five to 10 reps at well over 300 pounds, you know, within their accessory work. So again, the stronger you are, the stronger we have to drive that stimulus within your accessory work as well. Like, uh, a guy, you're in Australia, so like a guy that we've worked with a lot over the last two years is is William Crozier. And like when we started talking about like accessory work with him, laying on the ground isn't going to do anything for him. Like the first time I talked to that guy, like I was looking at his back and like his spinal erectors look like Coke bottles, right? Like, they're, like there's, there's no amount of sensory breathing work alone that's going to help him correct some of those ranges of motion or get into a different range of motion. We have to load it. We have to get something really high stimulus to get those things to unlock and move. So it's like, that's where we start including like safety bar work. Even a lot of the split squat variations that we'll use, we get people in like a zercher position uh, where they'll have a pretty heavily loaded barbell and probably like a front foot elevated for a lot of them to get more depth and get more into the hip capsule from that perspective and drive more IR into that, uh, kind of extreme end of flexion at that deep end, end of the range of motion, but they're doing it loaded and they're doing it pretty heavy. And for strong people, especially power lifters, I think that's where a lot of people make the mistake is they try a lot of the stuff they see non power lifters doing, and they try to apply it to themselves and it doesn't work. Well, that's just cause you're way stronger than that person. And you need a much larger stimulus to get anything to move from that perspective. So from a practical perspective, what, <clears throat> like if I tie together a few things you've said in that discussion is you might start with those ground-based drills just to get you some access to an awareness of those positions, but then you actually have to get under a bar and do some lifting commensurate with your strength. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, you might do the, the ground-based stuff for, for a few weeks just to get the coordination, just to get your abs and hamstrings firing at the same time. Right. But you need to take it off the ground and get it loaded quickly. Right. So a lot of what we do is, uh, we'll do like, for instance, like a safety bar squat for the squats, right? And we might even add a little bit of a heel ramp there just to get more forward knee translation because uh, a lot of our people have a trouble pronating their feet and actually getting dorsiflexion also just because they're so supinated and externally rotated. From a bench press perspective, we might do like a hook line bench press with a closer grip. So that would be just like in a bridge type position with their feet like on a bench or a box. And 
keeping a flatter lumbar spine and eliminating the arch and then pressing from there just to, again, get more protraction of the scapulas, get a little bit more reach and get some serratus involved and some pec minor involved in the aspect as well. Um, from a deadlift perspective, again, we use the trap bar pretty heavily, but we might also just have them do like a conventional RDL is one of their accessory lifts, just a closer stance, keeping the femurs neutral. Uh, and then from a pole perspective, we do a lot of chest supported rows, which again, allow the scaps to spread and protract, allow those rhomboids and traps to kind of stretch and eccentrically orientate. And then they can pull back against the full range of motion rather than just staying locked into retraction all the time. I was going to, I was going to actually ask something pertaining to that last little bit as well. So when we, way back we were talking about the squat and you said you know we're able to leverage our upper back and our lats and stuff to create stability because we're being held into extension by them so all we need to do is resist flexion um is there then a case for when we put ourselves in flexion asking those muscles to draw us back into extension or the posture that we want to be strong in like does getting strength that the way i like the way i envisage it i'm going to express this quite poorly is that if you, if you operate at only one end of the movement spectrum, because you only have to stabilize in one direction, you're only really strengthening, you're only really strengthening in that direction. And so by putting yourself in the opposite one, the muscles that might pull you into, into the posture that you actually want to assume get stressed. So when we get to, when we get to like end range protraction and flexion um, through the upper back and the scaps, then our retractors and extenders or extensors that we need for the squat are actually getting taxed and we can strengthen them so that we can then use them in the squat later. Is there any validity to that thinking? Yeah. I mean, that's actually, that's, that's a really good question, right? And that's, you put that pretty eloquently. I, I, I like it. So, uh, you know, what we also tell people like, if you can't, if you can't flex, you also can't extend because being in a state of extension doesn't mean you're good at extending, right? It just means you're there, right? And if we're against an end range, that means you're no longer extending further. So you're more in an isometric hold than anything else. Like it's not really a range of motion. So when we do like um, that chest supported row is a good example of that. What we're trying to do is create eccentric and concentric orientation. So lengthening and shortening of those big back muscles rather than just locking into scapular retraction and staying there all the time. So we, we now can build strength on both the eccentric, the deceleration and lengthening and the concentric for the shortening portion of that lift. So that's another reason why like that full range of motion that, that those things allow for actually create more joint stability and more strength through the muscular tissue, right? And it's also, there's a reason why we talk about like, if you guys watch anybody train from a hypertrophy standpoint, they go through full ranges of motion on everything, right? Because we want to make sure that we're, we're actually breaking down and hitting muscle belly at all ranges of motion and not just end ranges of motion. So that's only going to benefit, right? It's not going to inhibit your ability to stay retracted on a deadlift. It's only going to be able to strengthen your ability to hold that and your resiliency to, if for some reason that might, you know, you might slip out of that retraction, like the loads too much, right? You break down, you miss a lift, well, now you at least have the ability to essentially orientate those muscles and again, just spread rather than tipping over and maybe doing structural damage. So there's one last topic and welcome back, Alex. Um, we had some technical difficulties. Alex wasn't with us for a little bit. He's back and we've missed you, man. Um, Thank you. No, no worries. Wouldn't be the same. <laughs> so there's, 
there's one more topic that um, that I really want to cover because it's a term that everyone uses, but it seems a bit nebulous, and I often don't really know what I mean when I say it, which is um, which is this idea of integration. So people often talk about integrating a certain muscle or even a certain movement pattern within another. So people might talk about integrating some internal rotation with hip flexion, but they might also talk about like integrating their adductors in their squat pattern or their hip hinge or something like that. Um, what do we actually mean when we say that and, and how is it useful to think about this idea of integrating anything? Yeah. So, so when we think about how muscles work, right, you know, essentially what you're looking at is your skeletons, uh, essentially position in space, right. Against gravity, right. And, and the way you're standing in the different positions and postures you take, your body will integrate different muscles to hold itself up. Right. So if you're in a more extended pattern and your rib cage is over your torso and you're in an anterior pelvic tilt, your lats and your spinal erectors are going to be holding up your upper body. Whereas if you're more stacked, you're naturally going to integrate more abs, potentially upper back, glutes, hamstrings to or to coordinate that. So unloaded, we're really just working against gravity and muscles will react to the, the position of your bones and the joints, right? Because we also have insertion points on those joints. So if we're moving joint structures in space, that's also going to change length tension ratios of muscles, right? So if we have an anterior pelvic tilt, for instance, we have now lengthened the hamstring, right? Because we've moved up the insertion point, right? Superiorly at the pelvis while the knee remains fixed. So now we've got eccentric orientation and lengthening of that, of that actual muscle, right? So it, again, from that standpoint, if it's lengthened, it has a harder time actually contracting and bending the knee, right? Because now we, we've altered the length test ratio. So all we're looking at is the muscle's response to the joints positioning of, in space and muscles will integrate depending again, they should integrate naturally. You shouldn't have to think about it that much but they will integrate depending on how those joints are moving. So when we talk about a femur going into flexion, just based on the joint structure of the, uh, the greater trochanter and the actual femur head and the acetabulum of the pelvis, it's a ball and socket joint. There should be rotation of the femur, right? Internal rotation during flexion and external rotation during extension, right? And that's, that's just how the femur works based on the structure of the bones. So when we talk about integrating internal rotation into that, that means we have a loss of internal rotation. So that's what we talk about a lot when we talk about specifically powerlifters with super wide stances, because the wider you get, the more externally rotated and abducted that femur is going to be. And if we can't rotate that femur, we've now turned your hip joint into another knee, which becomes problematic, right? Because it's not structured like that. And that's, that could create issues within the actual joint complex itself with the labrum and some other things, or it could just be inefficient to move depending again on how you're loaded and how long you've been doing it. So from an integration standpoint, ideally all these things happen automatically and we don't have to integrate anything consciously. If we have to integrate something consciously and think about flexing a muscle or tensing a muscle or manipulating a muscle, that means something's not working correctly which means we're probably structurally not in the right position. So when you're in a narrower stance squat and you're going into hip flexion and your femurs are able to rotate, all these things happen without you having to think about it. 
the wider you get, the harder it is to internally rotate because you're forcing everything out into abduction and external rotation. Again, for a purpose, if you're powerlifting. But when we get into gait mechanics and you need reciprocal integrations and you need internal rotation on the forward leg, on the stance leg, and external rotation on the swing leg, just to facilitate walking in a straight line without waddling, right? It becomes problematic if you can't facilitate these motions. And if you're structurally in that anterior pelvic tilt, you can't rotate femurs just because of the way that uh, the femur actually acts on the acetabulum. So muscles will not be integrating the way they're supposed to. So because posture, you mentioned this in your answer, posture is subconscious um, or, or at least most of the time it is and thinking too much about it's going to make everything a bit honky. Are there, are there useful ways for us to, to just subtly manipulate, you know, the way in which our bones are stacked on top of each other to help us integrate, integrate certain muscles and movements in the way that we want without us thinking about it? Yeah, I, I think what I usually work on with most people, um, which is kind of the big rock, which solves a lot of problems downhill for them as well, right? Again, if we're talking about extended based athletes, if we look at that person from the side, right, their rib cage is usually forward in space over their toes, which leads to like that significant lumbar arch and that anterior pelvic tilt and all that stuff. If we can get their rib cage back over their midfoot and heel, everything lines up pretty well at that point. And, and you start getting a lot of, you know, quote unquote corrections downhill, where if now we can get a neutral rib cage, we've probably also internally rotated it back. So it's not flared out and super extended. Right. And at that point, because we've also taken that lumbar curve out of your spine a little bit, we should also be able to get a more neutral pelvis. Right. So if we do those things and just position the rib cage back, just based on our position in space and our, in our relationship to gravity, we should start getting a lot better integration from the abs, the hamstrings and the glutes rather than the hip flexors, the spinal erectors and the lats, those reciprocal groups. Uh, you know, so for me, it's if you, the way to explain it really easily with people in person, right. Is have somebody lean back as far as they can without falling. And what do they feel? What keeps them upright? their abs, right? They kick in automatically. You don't have to think about it. Have somebody lean all the way forward on their toes as far as they can without them falling back. What kicks in? Their lower back erectors. Again, we don't think about that. That's just, they're thrusting their, their rib cage back up to try to keep from falling over on their face, right? So these things just happen based on our relationship with gravity. So if we can move the rib cage back you automatically get more abs and just from a reciprocal muscle relationship, that means you're going to get less back erectors, right? Cause those things move in opposition of one another and they fire in opposition of one another. Right? So that's usually my quick fix for a lot of people. And that helps m most of the people I talk to just by itself. If that's not helping, we can always dig deeper down the rabbit hole and get more specific with other joint structures. And so how do we, um, how do we bring the ribs, back just think about again kind of back and down right so just think about leaning back over your rib cage and bringing those kind of those the tips of your ribs that sometimes just stick out and pop out through the bottom of your shirt right think about tucking them down a little bit too right and we think about that's how you flex your abs 
So that's automatically going to integrate more, a little bit more spinal flexion. Again, not acute spinal flexion. We don't want you hunched all the way over and like a false setup all day. But if we're going from extension, we can flex back into neutral, right? And just doing that, leaning the ribcage back a little bit will help reposition and stack. And you'll get kind of a cascade effect downhill. Matt, um, that makes sense. I want to wrap this discussion up unless, um, unless Alex has, has another like big question to throw at Kyle. No, I'm good. We can move to the um, next bit. Yeah. So the, the next or the big question, I guess is like, let's presume that everybody who's been listening is sold on this idea of trying to become a bit more efficient in their movement. Um, is there like one basic place that you think that powerlifters ought to start or like one or two basic practices that you think will help most people? Yeah, I think, you know, again, um, if we're talking about a rib cage and pelvis and getting neutral with both, we're talking, we're probably talking about abs and hamstrings, right? So we, if we can get both of those things, uh, firing more in their appropriate positions, you're going to eliminate like hyperextension on both ends, right? Both at the pelvis and the, and the, uh, the actual rib cage itself. So there's a ton of different drills that you can do to accomplish that. Um, people always ask me like what drill is best, but at the end of the day, it's the drill that works the best for the individual. You know, people assimilate different things, you know, different drills differently. So what I'm always looking to do is use the hamstrings to pull the pelvis down posteriorly into neutral and using the abs to pull it up anteriorly into neutral. And again, those, those actions will also move the rib cage back. So if we start with abs and hamstrings, we're probably in a pretty good place to reposition the pelvis in the rib cage. Unreal. Thanks so much, mate. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to come back and hit you with the four questions that tell us everything that we need to know about a person. Welcome back. We're here with Kyle Dobbs. We're going to ask him the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Kyle, you ready? I think so. Let's do it, man. So question one, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, I think, you know, just historical figures, non-related. I would probably say uh, Charles Darwin. He's, he's someone that historically has always fascinated me. Just uh, the way he looked at biology and people and animals and everything else. What would you, uh, what would you talk to him about? Uh, just a lot of his concepts regarding evolution and, you know, survival, right. And how genes are kind of, again, you know, filtered out through that process and uh, made it out or killed out essentially. Uh, it's something that's always fascinated me throughout again, just childhood grew up in the country around animals. And uh, yeah, I, I was a biology major in college and, wrote some papers on them. So I wonder, um, I don't know if you, if you would know, but I wonder actually what he would be like as a personality. Cause I can imagine somebody who had been like, who'd basically spent his life, like discovering that it was all about survival of the fittest and stuff. I could imagine him being really type A and like unsympathetic. Like if you were like, Oh, I'm having some trouble at work or something, you'd be like, well, it's just cause you're fucking incompetent and better people. <laughs> succeed. <laughs> It's very possible. He, he, he might not be, uh, he might not be a great dinner date. Well, all like the alternative could be, he'd be like really morose and like sad that that's how the world is, you know, 
like, like I'm not saying he'd be like a full incel, but you know, the people on the internet who, who like basically think the world's against them and they're unlucky and it's all a genetic lottery and like, you know, their, their lack of success isn't their fault and stuff. He could also totally be like that and just be really glum about what he's discovered. It's like, just blame everybody on your parents. Blame it all. <laughs> I already do. It's all your genome. It's all your genome. <laughs> no, I reckon he'd be a very interesting person to talk to. I think, um, you wrote some papers on him, so you can probably expand on this a bit. But I just remember hearing this story about he he studied he studied somewhere a bunch of like a bunch of close islands where there'd been um there'd been like convergent and divergent evolution of like bird species. So there was a number of like woodpeckers or something that were like similar but different. Um, and I'm not sure if you know anything of this story, but and I'm not going to be able to tell it well enough to make it interesting. But but following his chain of thought and his chain of logic in realizing that there might be a common origin for all of them, but like the different environmental influences that might've, might've made them the way they are is really fascinating. Cause it's one of those things where like somebody might have that thought and never quite tease it out enough, enough to actually take it anywhere. But he sort of really took it and ran with it and then started like looking to falsify his ideas and just kept finding more and more good evidence. It was really interesting hearing about it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of the, just an example of being able to critically think and be objective. Right. And, you know, just like I said, I was a science major and one of the thing, one of the things that bothers me the most about kind of the social media culture that we deal with now is people who don't know how to read studies and research, like throwing out PubMed links to like cherry pick to justify all of their beliefs. Right. And you know, it's when we start looking at science, like science typically tries to disprove more than it does Proof, right? Like critical thinking is one of the major aspects of the scientific reasoning tree. Uh, and most people just try to use that process to validate their beliefs rather than actually question them uh, in most cases. Yeah. And this idea, like the idea of sort of everybody's opinion being equally valid is almost like in direct opposition to the idea of critical thinking. Like I'm always like, you're entitled to have an opinion. And if it's on something where it's not a matter of fact, then I'm of course just going to respect it and leave it. But if you have an opinion on something that, that is actually a matter of fact, it's no more respectable for the fact that you hold the opinion if you can't defend it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's obviously different levels of, of research and, and just again, um, knowledge founded in that opinion, you know, that, that I, th or that founds that opinion that I think different individuals hold, you know, and again, like we talk about biomechanics and I have people on social media all the time that like literally tell me like biomechanics aren't real. And if you're telling me that you don't believe in like math and physics, right. You know, or, or how the skeleton actually works. Um, you know, so again, it's like, you can have an opinion that's totally fine and you can talk about it. I'm probably not going to actually engage you in a conversation though. If it's just blatantly in opposition to things that we pretty much know is true. How biomechanics aren't real. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's interesting because it, and it all comes down to like looking at postures and looking at things like that. And you know, a lot of people will cite, you know, again, that there's no set, you know, correct posture, which I'll agree with. It's all task dependent, but that's not, that's not saying the same thing as, you know, different postures are beneficial for different tasks. Right. Uh, so when we start looking at things like sport versus life or sport versus health, like different postures are going to facilitate those things better based on the environment, based on the individual and based on the task. So, 
So again, it's just, it's interesting to have conversations with people who are in a, in a profession that's, you know, kind of centers around the human body and performance that don't believe in like fundamental, pretty factual things that we know, you know, do you remember the all founded in science. Do you remember the all squats are beautiful memes? That was like, this would be five years ago. (laughs) No. (laughs) So it was, um, it was like, it was basically trolling body acceptance, which is another topic entirely. Um, But it was basically, there was this big, um, there was this big spike in multiply world records. I think this is when Dave Hoff first squatted like 1100 pounds and it was like six inches high. And, um, (laughs) And so people were, people were posting like body image quotes but superimposed over pictures of like really dodgy squats that had passed in powerlifting or like squats that were just biomechanically disgusting and stuff. And it was like, it was basically like you have to accept my body for what it is and all this shit. And then they'd finish with all squats are beautiful. And it'd just be superimposed over terrible squats. If you Google all squats are beautiful, you'll probably find a bunch of the memes, but it was one of those like super niche 50 people in the world would appreciate it. Sets of memes that were actually very funny. That actually sounds like something I'll Google right now, probably. <laughs> I'll search, search that hashtag, see what happens. It's in like the absolute basement of the internet, but it was fun. <laughs> All right, Alex. Question two. So I'm excited for this one because you mentioned basketball. So I really hope you say a basketball player. Uh, who's your favorite athlete of all time? I'm actually not going to say a basketball player. I'm going to say a track guy, but uh, Michael, I, I'm I, Sorry to disappoint, but um, Michael Johnson was actually my, I was a 400 runner as well. So I was growing up during the Atlanta Olympics and he crushed everybody, won the gold. Um, and somebody I followed throughout that process. So favorite basketball player is, I don't know. Again, I just from when I grew up historically, I was a big Kevin Garnett guy as well. So random. I like that. Um, when were the Atlanta Olympics? Were they 96? Am I correct? 90, 96. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm um, speaking of just because we've been talking about biomechanics and posture and you've, you're obviously somewhat into track. I want your hottest take on Eric Little or Liddell, like chariots of fire guy and his running style. I'm not, I'm honestly not even sure if I know who that guy is. So like, you I'm know Chariots of Fire? Da, 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 da. That song? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he was an English runner and he actually, I think it was the 400 that he won at the Olympics. But one of the things that made him famous was that he was really, really Christian. And so he refused to run on a Sunday, I believe, in the Olympics. And there are all these other like instances where he like showed himself to be like a fine upstanding dude, like stopping to help up somebody who'd fallen over in a race and then still winning it and stuff. Um, but he used to run with, with his hands kind of like up way too high, like with sort of pointing upwards and waving at the sky. Like he had a very, very unconventional running technique that's been, it's been taken off a little bit, but if you haven't watched chariots of fire, like you should, it's good fun. And he, um, he also ran and I believe set a record that, that stood for a really long time. Um, this like corridor dash at a university. It might've been Oxford or Cambridge or something um, where basically they just had to run around a square and it was roughly 400 meters. 
and he held the record for ages. But he's just he's just somebody who's known for a whole bunch of really crazy athletic feats, was really Christian and had a pretty bizarre character and just ran in the most bizarre, inefficient looking way, but it was just quick. I, I think I've learned more from this this little section than than you guys have. Right, that's honestly that's as much as I know about track and field generally. <laughs> I only know that because I went to a Christian school and like had to watch Chariots of Fire. Like at my school, basically the way they sucked you into Christian studies more because most of the kids didn't really want to do it was they always picked movies that were actually pretty good and then made you like analyze them through a Christian lens. So like we'd watch The Lion King and look at it as like, you know, a Jesus story and and stuff, you know, like Simba. Simba being like the chosen son and all this stuff. And so you'd have to basically analyze the Lion King and talk about it in terms of Christianity. But all it was, was an excuse to make us watch the Lion King. So we'd listen in class and same thing for Chariots of Fire, actually pretty good movie, great soundtrack, iconic, you know, and we just looked at it from a Christian perspective. So there you Interesting. go. There, there we go. Alex. It's your question. William. Oh, okay. So it is. Um, sorry, I, I'd forgotten. I hadn't talked in too long. Um, so question three, Kyle, is which movie or television character do you most resemble? Uh, so before I had a beard, uh, I was called Ivan Drago for most of my life. So I, <laughs> apparently, uh, Dolph Lundgren was, uh, it was my, uh, my guy for a while there. Did you, would you ever have seen yourself as a boxer? Could you have done it? I, I mean, if I grew up training for it, but as of like now, I, absolutely not. I just get roasted all the time. Uh, would you like, would you be interested at all in it? Probably not, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's never really my thing. I mean, it'd be a chance to gonna... be in like a flexion and protraction based sport. I feel like that might be interesting too. Yeah, I I mean I think boxing is a sports just even just from like strategy and, and from the tactical side of things, the skill side of things is pretty fascinating anyway. But but yeah, it's uh the postures are definitely it's the other extreme most of the time, right? Where they're going to extreme flexion to essentially mitigate any kind of you know damage they're taking for punches and kind of limit the amount of space that somebody has to punch and make themselves as small as possible like everything from kind of sidestepping to extreme flexion is just decreasing the damage they're taking at that point and trying to get reach so so crossover there right we're going on to question four this is my favorite one but probably the hardest your life is being made into a montage and you get to choose the music that it's set to. What music would you pick? Oh, see, yeah, this is uh, not a music guy at all. Um, I don't know. Something slow. I'm a pretty slow laid back guy. Um, just even like in the music I listen to. Listen to a lot of country. So probably something in that genre. Who's your favorite country artist? I know you said you're not a big music guy, but hit us with it. Uh, uh, probably Cross Canadian Ragweed. Pardon me? <laughs> They're not big. It's more like Texas country, indie country, but Cross Canadian Ragweed. So anybody who's big 
into country would probably again be familiar, but anybody else, not at all. I mean, I can't say I'm a big country listener, but I'm going to have to check them out and have a listen. That'd be cool. Check them out, man. Check them out. Yeah, Matt. Um, Kyle, we really appreciate your time today. It's been super informative episode, um, especially for me. I've learned a lot. So thank you so much. Your last job is to let everybody who's listening know where they can get in touch with you, where they can follow you on Instagram and what services that you do offer because you said you do mentor coaches and things as well. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at compoundperformance underscore. Um, somebody apparently already had the the compound performance. I think that's one of those profiles with no pictures and no no followers. But that's where you'll find me. Um, my company's Rebel Performance, so you'll find that at the Rebel Performance, um, and then our website is Rebel Hyphen Performance. So we we offer everything from remote training to uh, coaching development, both in individual and group formats. So we're working right now with a group of about 80 people. I work at any given time with between 10 and 20 individuals. Uh, and then from a remote coaching standpoint, we've, we've got a, between 25 and 30 people we're working with right now. So at any given time, we're working with a pretty large number of people between the three of us. Um, but you can find everything on the site. We also have a podcast ourselves, uh, Roman Performance Radio where we talk with, we release one a week. So have some pretty good guests on there. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really about it. Everything else is on Instagram. I try to stay off of Facebook and a lot of the other social media platforms. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, dude. I'm Will, um, Will Berkman, w.berkmanpt. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. We'll chat to you guys next week. Thank you.